What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you will open our hearts and our minds to your word and your word to our hearts and our minds. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, if you are visiting in this summer period, we're working our way through uh, James' uh, epistle, and tonight our sermon's entitled Faith That Works. So perhaps you could open the Bibles in the pews to James chapter 2, page 10, 12, uh, 1012, and verses 14 to 26. And uh, if you want to jot down any notes, you've got some space on the back of your service sheets, and you may like to jot down my headings, which are first, <clears throat> the need to discriminate in religion. Secondly, the background to James' teaching. And then thirdly, what is false and true? So first, the need to discriminate in religion. Secondly, the background to James' teaching. And then thirdly, what is false and uh, true in faith. So first, the need to discriminate in religion. The uh, latest edition of the International Bulletin of Missionary Research tells us that the world is becoming more religious. The number of atheists and agnostics, they are the no religion people, uh, are dramatically declining, uh, except in Europe. In 1970, atheists accounted for 4.5% of the global total. But uh, on current trends, they will be 1.8% in 2020. And uh, in 1970, agnostics were 14.7% of the global total, but they will be 8.9% in 2020. But is that a good thing? Well, it all depends on what people who are religious are believing. For they can't all be right and true, because the religions of the world say contradictory things. So James says that you must discriminate when you come uh, to faith, even within the Christian religion. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James is saying you need to make judgments about faith. You have to discriminate between good and bad faith. And the Bible is clear in this epistle uh, of James particularly, the practical results of faith are fundamental in proving the reality uh, or truth of faith. But of course such discrimination is discouraged and sometimes even outlawed these days. Yet this is so serious. It's not the way to live in an open society, which most people want. That is one where reasoned argument is the only acceptable way of promoting or opposing views or actions where there's disagreement. Uh, for coercion or intimidation are ruled out. Let me quote one of the last things the distinguished 
Newcastle University sociologist Norman Dennis wrote before he died a couple of years ago. In an open society, people listen uh, to an opponent's case with a readiness to be corrected. But they treat their opponent's case, in turn, as sufficiently important to seek to correct it where they believe it to be factually distorted or morally or spiritually mistaken. They treat both their own view of the world and that of their opponent seriously. That is to say, with respect. But respect, in this sense, is just not possible, but simply irrelevant if all beliefs uh, are held to be equally valid and you may not discriminate. If they're all equally true and equally good, then you'll only feel indifference if they're neutral, uh, pleasure if you benefit from them, or hatred or fear if they oppress you or harm you in any way. For rational responses are excluded. All that is possible are emotions. Respect then becomes a meaningless category. So in the irrational culture of political correctness, any rational criticism is heard as hatred or fear, or the, in the Greek phobia, such as hobophobia or Islamophobia. But James would have none of this. For discrimination is needed regarding faith when there is an issue, as verse 14 tells us. So secondly, the background to James' teaching. The immediate background to what he's saying is there in verses 8 to 11 of uh, chapter 2. We looked at them last week. Just look at uh, them now. If you, verse 8, if you really uh, fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Well, James actually is following Jesus in opposing a superficial understanding uh, of keeping God's law. Of course, Jesus taught it was a heart matter as well as outward action that counted in things like murder and adultery. So everyone, if they're honest, knows they are guilty before God and out of sorts with him. All, therefore, deserve uh, God's uh, discrimination. For all are guilty. All deserve punishment, and all are separated from a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. So what is the long-term solution? Well, answer, to preach the biblical truth that sin is real. And it does separate you from a holy God who is there. And the only answer is the cross of Christ and what Christians call justification by faith. Now, that's the doctrine that, along with the importance of the Bible, was at the heart of the 16th century European reformation of religion. Uh, and uh, for the Apostle Paul, that was at the centre of the Gospel. Now, other New Testament writers affirm the same doctrine, but Paul gave it the clearest exposition. The Apostle Peter gives a summary when he wrote in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, including himself and apostle, apostle Peter, to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, the New Testament teaches that the uh, three uh, problems of one, human guilt, two, the need for punishment, and three, the separation from God that results from sin were amazingly dealt with uh, by that, in effect, cosmic event of Christ's death on the cross. Human guilt can now be covered by Christ's perfect righteousness. God can be just and at the same time free us or justify us from the punishment we deserve with Christ bearing it uh, in our place. Therefore, eternal reconciliation and an end to separation with God is now possible. And all that is what uh, is meant by justification by faith. By faith, because it simply requires faith to be open to this reconciliation. Now, justification is a metaphor from the law courts. The Bible uses another metaphor nowadays from social services, namely adoption. To understand faith, it's as though through Christ, all is ready for your adoption by God, as imagine a hard-to-place teenager from an abusive children's home, this sinful world. But you, like a hard-to-place teenager, can accept that adoption or refuse to enter into the new family of God's people. Faith is you accepting it, which means faith in the divine adoptive parent. Practically, that is a personal faith in the risen Jesus, uh, and more like believing in a surgeon about to give you uh, an operate on you, rather than that the dustman will come on Wednesdays. So God adopts you or justifies you, not because of anything you do, but because he loves you and takes pity on you and wants to adopt you and help you. Now, of course, if you accept his help, you now have a new status uh, as a member of God's family. But it will take you time for you as a spiritually hard-to-adopt uh, teenager to learn the new behaviours that are required by God's family and for your good. And that learning in the spiritual life is called sanctification, as distinct from justification. So the background to James uh, 2, 12 and 26 is what Article 11 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England uh, call of the justification of man. And it describes this as a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. And it is wholesome, for it does heal people who are crippled with guilt and uh, self-loathing for serious sin, as it seems and one imagines is the case with the broadcaster Stuart Hall, as we heard this week, uh, as well as people who begin to realise that their sins of omission or ignorance may have ruined lives just as much as the, the crimes of criminals. But if James is arguing, all will show some fruit that comes from this reality of justification. For God is working in your life by his Holy Spirit to bring this about as you realize that because of Christ, God is now 100% for you. 
He sees in you, now hidden in Christ, to use the biblical uh, term, not the sin that the world still sees even, and you see, but the goodness, the righteousness, the perfection, however you describe it, of Jesus Christ. And you understand, of course, that that cannot be due to your effort. It's all due to the grace, the giving, the initiative, uh, again, however you want to put it, of God in Jesus Christ. You contribute nothing to it. You simply receive what God is doing, like that offer of adoption. And uh, with your new justified or adopted status, you start at least to want to try to do what God thinks is best for the family. But this is not a doctrine everyone gets right. So thirdly, James wants to spell out what is false and true faith. We'll look now at verses, uh, particularly verses 15 to 17. But uh, verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the great thing about this passage of James is that it does not try uh, formally to analyze faith. Uh, as the theological books do, and sometimes make it seem too complicated. What we're given here, from another perspective, are four practical examples of what true faith is not and, uh, what true, and of what true faith is. And the first example is of the false faith of someone who ignores the desperate needs of fellow Christians who lack not the latest fashionable gear, but are in rags. And uh, they lack not, not a trolley load from Asda, but food to get them through today, the daily, daily food. And all this person gives them are pious phrases such as, go in peace, verse 16. Such a person, verse 14, comes under the description of someone who says he has faith. Now note that word says, because he has simply, uh, he's simply got a profession of faith. So the lack of works proves it's a false faith and not the real thing. Here's an example of the principle in verse 17 that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And these works, as with Paul, means as with Paul, mean acts of love, not just religious rituals. And how vital uh, is that for our support of? Christians uh, as we were praying just a moment ago in uh, Bury in rural Kenya. We heard from Joyce and Wenwood last uh, Sunday uh, of Nokapila, who we're going to hear about on, on Wednesday evening, and uh, the South Sudan, where uh, we are working with uh, Anglican International Development, some of us directly, and there are desperate needs uh, like this there. Well, the second example comes in verses 18 and 19, but let's look at that. But someone say, will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Well, I'm not going into discussion of where those punctuation marks, you'll see them in the text, uh, should appear because scholars are divided as to who is actually speaking at which point. But the gist of that is quite clear. 
True faith has to be evidence in works of changed lives and good deeds. Simple orthodoxy, even orthodoxy about justification by faith is not enough and in fact is wrong. Even the demons are orthodox. But their response to God is not one of personal trust and loving obedience, but of fear and trembling. They shudder. Well then, the uh, third example after these two illustrations of false faith is Abraham as an example of true faith. Look at verses 20 to 24. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith that parks from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now some people say at this point, is not James contradicting the apostle Paul? Didn't Paul say a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law? Uh, doesn't Paul therefore teach the opposite of verse 24 that we've just read that says it is not by faith alone? And uh, down the centuries, some Christians, including Luther at the start, uh, have got confused over that. Well, the answer is no, there's not a contradiction. The problem is more imaginary than real because James and Paul are preaching the same gospel but with a different emphasis. And the key to understanding the difference between them uh, is this. Paul illustrates faith in Romans 4, uh, his great chapter on faith, by quoting Genesis chapter 15. And this was when Abraham was desperate for his wife to have a child and heir. And then God, you remember, showed him the night sky and uh, its stars and said, this is Genesis 15 verse 5, look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Genesis 15 verse 6 says, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is Abraham's simple trust in God's promise of an heir. James, however, illustrates not simply initial, that simple initial justifying faith, but the proof of that faith by the incident in Genesis chapter 22, which we had as our second lesson, our first lesson. Now that was after Abraham's uh, son Isaac was born. And God was wanting to test Abraham's faith by asking him physically to sacrifice Isaac. Now clearly that was not God's intention, but a test. In the event, Abraham's obedience proved his trust in God's promises. His faith was proved by his obedience. So you read in Genesis 22, verses 11 and 12, but the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now James is therefore using justify in a slightly different sense, it's used elsewhere like this in the Bible, uh, to different sense to Paul, to mean prove. So Abraham's works recorded in Genesis 22 
prove that his initial faith was the genuine article. James 2.22 says his faith was now completed. It was not that he had lacked anything before, but it was now proved genuine and true. James is in fact expounding the thought that Paul expressed in Galatians 5 verse 6 of faith working through love. Such faith trusts and then obeys. So James here makes it clear that though faith and works must be distinguished, they must never be separated and can never be separated. But Paul believed the same thing. For he says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a, a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Abraham clearly illustrates true faith by showing such faith trusts and obeys. Well then, the fourth and final illustration of true faith is Rahab, a very different person from the noble, well-connected Abraham. She was a common prostitute. Look at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. You read about her in Joshua chapter 2, where she now uh, has come to believe in the living God, but then she was concerned for the good uh, and welfare of God's people in the person of uh, the spies uh, before the entry into the Promised Land, and uh, she saved their lives. And this was at risk to herself. But she proves that true faith and repentance are for everyone, including prostitutes like Rahab, and not just the well-connected like Abraham. So James concludes, this is verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And I'm going to conclude, and I do so with these questions, have you true faith? Or, or do just say you have faith? Are you really trusting and obeying Christ as uh, your saviour and lord? Now the problem with those sorts of questions, necessary as they are, is that they can cause some Christians to doubt that they have true faith when they have it. They think their continuing failures, they're aware of and confess, must mean they lose their, and are losing their salvation. But the Bible is clear, for true believers, God's justifying verdict is in effect the judgment of the last day brought forward. So if you are trusting Christ and wanting to live for him, however much you regularly need to seek his forgiveness, while still, so to speak, in this uh, lifelong learning process, be assured that verdict is secure and permanent. It depends not on your performance, that's why, but on what Christ has done. Romans 8, 33 to 34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies... Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So continue to trust, love and obey God and love and work for others. And as we sang, 
and scripture teaches, make uh, your election, your calling sure. But if, because you made some commitment years ago, you think you can live as you like, and you are living as you like, be warned by James, and ask God to give you or renew in you a true and living faith in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. And then pray for the Holy Spirit to work in and with you to prove that faith. For Philippians 2 verse 13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. Then trust and obey. Let's pray. Shall we have a moment of silence before we, or as we respond to these uh, questions before we sing our next hymn? And uh, pray for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, not only to trust Christ, but to obey and in practical ways. Maybe a silent prayer. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.